Okay, so uh, let's get this going. I'm calling this the assistant situation roundtable. Um, and this came out of nowhere. But uh, believe me, Steve and I, Steve Cook and I had this conversation the other day that was unscripted. And I wanted to talk to him about his um, process of hiring assistants and mentoring them and bringing them up through his system. And then uh, the obvious question came up uh, about the dearth of uh, assistant candidates these days, 200 plus open assistant jobs on our job boards. And if you factor in uh, seconds and AITs, it's over 300. Um, and so that's highly unusual. So I decided to just throw a snippet of the video up there as a teaser. And that's been viewed over 41,000 times as of this morning and sort of blew Twitter up on <laughs> Friday and Saturday, which again, wasn't intended, but it was remarkable and surprising how much um, interest that, uh, that garnered uh, for better or for worse. Um, what I would like to do, and again, it was suggested, I think it was um, John Kaminsky, suggested that we have some sort of a round table to discuss this. Uh, my first thought was to do a public one. And, uh, you know, the, that is difficult to orchestrate. I think it, it tends to be distracting when, you know, you've got people, uh, you actually need a whole nother person to, um, to manage that. Uh, so I just decided, let's do this. I, I, picked uh, you people out of um, the ones who have who are who commented yesterday or expressed some interest in participating um, and what I'd like to do is focus let, let's acknowledge that the problem exists I don't think we need to go back 20 years to delve into where the students went um, blah, 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 at, as to why there aren't more candidates in the pipeline. Let's just assume that they're not, they're not there. Um, and some of the reasons why Steve uh, eloquently um, explained in that video, but it, I think what it boils down to is a work slash life slash compensation imbalance. And this doesn't apply to strictly assistance. I think it certainly applies in many areas to superintendents as well. Um, when we look at the attrition rate of, of uh, superintendents, it's scary how many end up going into sales or leaving the business. I communicated with one uh, just this morning who I was wondering where he's been and he's been working for his town public works department for the last five years. Uh, you know, and that's, that's kind of, it, it's not kind of a shame, it is a shame because, um, you know, the industry puts a lot and you guys personally put a lot into training people and mentoring and bringing them up and to just have them leave because these, these, um, the culture or the, the scheduling or the, the workload, whatever it happens to be, doesn't allow them to live a life outside of it, um, really becomes uh, 
overshadowing. So maybe what we can do is um, go around and uh, so we've got seven, pe six people. I'd like to keep this to an hour. So that means um, 10 minutes each, uh, so to speak. So if we could maybe spend five minutes each um, discussing, explaining your situation uh, at your particular facility, what you see, you know, is it a problem? Is it not a problem? Um, that type of thing, sort of define the scope of the problem within your particular facility. And then let's talk about um, uh, ways we can go about improving that, or perhaps what you would like see done or what you have done in terms of um, accommodating or trying to tweak the system to accommodate a life alongside or outside of the golf course. Paul, why don't you kick it off? Well, thanks so much, Peter, for the invitation. First of all, um, it's wonderful to be here with this group to chat about to chat about a topic that's really, I think, it's one of those elephants in the room that we've all been kind of sitting beside, and it kind of keeps bumping us, I think, each year. And it's funny, I. I watched the clip as well and, and, and commented and then I saw and immediately my mind went the same place John Kaminsky's went and, and started going backwards. And in Atlanta, Canada, we've seen we've seen it go with the golf boom and bust. It, I mean, we boomed here back in the 2000, like late 90s, 2000, ton of construction, ton of, that's when I got into the business, really. That's when I kind of hit the ground running. I had my choice of places to go to work at that point, because I think there was five or six courses just on my small island under construction at that time. So, and there was a lot of courses in Atlantic Canada under construction. And, and I ended up teaching at the local college. There was a, a turf program for a while. And then there was a a golf management program that had a pretty strong turf component and I taught there for almost a decade and that's all gone now because golf just went the other way as John mentioned in his thing it did like it's such an interesting topic for discussion but but it's hard not to look back and see the trend I think and and so for us personally um here at Fox Meadow and, and I think most of the other courses we we gave up on assistance a long time ago. We, we just, they just don't exist in Atlanta, Canada. There's, there's just not people no. principally because there hasn't been jobs for them to move into because most of there's not that many courses in Atlanta, Canada. And if you get a job, like you mentioned, you keep it and, and people don't tend to move very far. So, so it's been one of those scenarios where I am blessed at Fox Meadow because I have an assistant who's also my equipment technician, who's fantastic. He's just the best of both worlds. And it, it's really been uh, just a gift for me overall. And did you say then, he's your brother-in-law? Yeah, he's my brother-in-law as well. So, yeah, <laughs> worked out really well. Um, and it's the type of thing that we've, we've just really had to work hard internally to find we're, we're in a suburb community so we don't struggle to find people to work it's, it's not a problem we we're usually like turning people away um and so really we've been super lucky to find really good young people 
to come and work with us and, and keep them for five, six, seven years. But to find one that really wants to take this on has been a struggle. And I've been lucky. I found a young guy about a year and a half, two years ago, who's, who's interested now. And, and we're at the point where we're working together and we're going to probably end up funding part of his education to, to send him somewhere, whether it's Guelph or Penn State or wherever it is. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with it. So that, that educational program that you mentioned is gone, just closed up. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think if, if you've got a labor supply that you can get young people in for five or six years straight, and they do a good job and they're trainable and that kind of, man, you're way ahead of the game. You're way oh, ahead, of, the, you're yeah, way ahead of most people. And that's the thing. We, we consider ourselves so exceptionally lucky because we, we've created an atmosphere and it's not by accident. We work hard. At it. We, we make sure that we're a, a fun place to work and that, and that, that kids want. That is what we want to find more out or find more out about later on. Jennifer. Yeah, for me, um, I've been fortunate. I have my son that works with me um, that wants to go down this path. And I've had him along my my journey for basically since I got into the career. Um, but finding people like him, are, they're far and few between. And at my situation here at the, the golf course that I'm at, we don't technically have an assistant slot. So he's just kind of here as a laborer getting paid, you know, the 17 bucks an hour excuse me, an hour. And, you know, does that motivate someone that doesn't have a passion like he does to continue to, to go down that path? Um, and then going on to school, I think the hardest part for these guys is getting that foot in the, in the door at, at the Penn States and, and at the Rutgers programs, not knowing where to possibly go get the, the scholarship funding that they could possibly have to go to school. So I think that's the hard part here. Um, I've talked to, with a few kids that are in, in high school that are kind of interested, but they're just not really sure. And then uh, I've talked to a few that are working for other employers that one of them reached out to me because she knew my daughter, or he knew my daughter, and he didn't even know about our state association. And that kind of floored me that he was working for someone and didn't even know that there was an association out there that could possibly help him you know, become a student member and maybe qualify for scholarship programs through our association. So um, I think we just need to do a better job of uh, informing people too, that the, the career is here. And uh, a lot of people don't know what we do. So you are active with GCSAA as a uh, uh, grassroots ambassador. And did I also see that you are involved with a uh, BMP initiative in New Jersey? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to get all of our guys now to take that state level program and break it down to their facility level. And one, one question I have that hopefully we can get into at some point, whether today or another day is whether there is room for a, you know, th there are BMPs for just about everything these days um, from, you know, the Audubon type thing to uh, whatever it happens to be, uh, why there isn't or has never been to the best of my knowledge, some sort of a uh, guideline uh, 
written up as a as a target for hiring and staffing and you know that kind of thing it seems to me there's a big void there yep i agree phil so i just went through this process of uh and the tweet that seemed to spur a lot of conversation was the guy i had working for me uh had followed me to my current property uh last spring uh just came to me and said phil i don't know if i can do this anymore um he said, I just, uh, I don't see myself working. Now, this is a mid 20 year old, still single, no children, pretty much free to do whatever he wanted. I just said, I don't see myself working six, seven days a week uh, for the next 20 years for 12 hours a day, most of the year. And I think this problem is multifaceted and it goes bigger than even just the assistant super situation, uh, but it, it does hurt. Uh, the pool of people we have to draw from. Um, so when I posted the job this year, I mean, I think, I think I counted before we did this 13 to 15 jobs available for assistance alone within two hours of my facility. And some of them have been posted for months and are, the pay is, I think now, probably too late, but the pay is, is fair, or at least what they're posting at is fair. Uh, we posted the job. It was posted probably five or six weeks. And I had a total of four applicants. Uh, we, we had posted up to 75 and we were willing to pay that or even more if we got the right candidate. Uh, we had discussed even going higher. Uh, and I had four applicants, three of which um, were either never in the industry or had been away from the industry for uh, quite a, a long while. Uh, the person I hired, I feel super fortunate to have found. Uh, luckily, he had worked at the facility before, was a younger guy who lived close, uh, and I was able to fill it with what I think is going to be a super, uh, a super good guy. Um, but how, how long uh, was that process to find him? Six weeks. And, and really, when his, uh, his application came in, his resume came in initially, my RDA was kind of against hiring him because of the lack of experience. He had never been even as much as a foreman or assistant in training, uh, but had worked at some nice facilities, had volunteered at some nice places and, uh, and had gone to turf school, uh, was fresh out of turf school. And we just, uh, with a 36 hole facility with a renovation going on, we were hoping to find someone with a bit more experience, uh, but that inv individual just either isn't out there or isn't interested in our position. Um, but this guy was impressive. So I, I'm certainly happy. I found him. I think I did well for myself, obviously to be determined. Uh, but to for what we had it posted, uh, in our area, which is very dense, you're familiar, dense golf, dense population. We had a, a total of four applicants over, uh, five or six weeks. Hmm. Yeah. You've got a lot of good clubs around there too. Um, yeah. And, and we, the cost of uh, living high as well very high it is not good uh, i do have another assistant he's in our house uh, that we provide we provide him housing this one we didn't have that option um but it's just um you know to post a job for up to 75 to have four applicants and then to see not just me fiddler's elbow has been looking for quite a while i don't know if they filled that yet or not and they're guaranteeing a five-day work week uh and posted it up to eighty thousand. So 
you know, that's pretty good, you, you know, and, and it's been posted for months. Uh, so I don't know if they just haven't taken it down or it hasn't been filled. They had edited it a few times. So I'm assuming they just didn't fill it. And, you know, that's a pretty good situation. It's a great facility with a five-day work sure. week with what seems to be a, a pretty, a pretty significant salary. And it looks like they were struggling. I saw Mike Bear at Seaview. He's posting on Facebook looking for an assistant. Um, and that's a nice club hosting LPG, uh, LPGA event. And he is also seems to be struggling. Cobblestone Creek has been looking since last summer. Um, th these are all within my area. Cobblestone Creek is the old green acres. Right. Lawrence. Um, you know, I could go right down the list and we, we're all just looking. There's and just nobody out there. Nobody interested. And we've probably created this problem for ourselves. Hey, Chad, you are an assistant who's thinking about bailing out and going to law school. Uh, potentially, yes. So, not, uh, not, to, little... not to back you into the corner, right? Right. I think he... uh, yeah. Um, a little background on me. So, I I'm a COVID graduate from NDSU, um, Minnesota, born and raised. So, stuck around. Obviously, there's a lot of jobs available on the East Coast. And I know I have a kind of unique uh, perspective as opposed to the rest of you, but some background kind of with our region and uh, Greg being in South Dakota can probably speak to this too. Our one uh, two-year program kind of, I'd assume between the upper Midwest and Chicago closed down in Oka Tech. Um, they announced their closure last year. I graduated from NDSU and with two other people and one other person a year ahead of me. So enrollment's really down up there. And that's with a horticulture degree, not even a turf-specific degree. Uh, I work at Hazeltine. That, that's Chris North NDSU is North Dakota State, I assume. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Up in Fargo, North Dakota. And South Dakota State, Iowa State, the U of M, Wisconsin, they all offer programs. Not sure how their enrollment is faring. Uh, I work at Hazeltine as a second assistant uh, with Chris Tritabai. I would assume most of you are pretty familiar with him and we're pretty lucky. Uh, Chris obviously is the head superintendent. We have a lead superintendent and then myself as a second assistant with another individual too. What we've found to be, uh, I guess, over the course of time, great for our facility and we obviously attract a lot of people just given the name of the tournaments is myself and the lead assistant uh, we're interns, so that's kind of the pool that Chris tends to pull from is people that he's kind of trialed before. And uh, the way he gets people to, I guess, go there, there's obviously tons of reasons, but with our uh, crew and our assistants, we emphasize responsibility. We give people kind of the ability to make decisions and have fun with it, and we also trust them. As uh, touched on law school, like Peter had mentioned, the reason I'm pursuing to get out and I have a great job, I won't, you know, uh, fudge around with, with that. Like I'm, I'm in a great position. There's many, many worse places to be, but a perspective that I'd like to get all your guys' insight on is there's a risk for all assistants of getting to that superintendent level, but not having it be a lucrative one, because in reality, there's not a ton of top tier paying courses. So, you know, working so much in such a laborious profession and not getting to that end result and having such a huge risk as opposed to getting out and going to sales 
or doing something else entirely, which is why I'm interested in law school because it's a diverse degree, but nothing set in stone. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, you certainly work for a superintendent who gets it uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the work-life balance thing. Um, as a matter of fact, he and Paul uh, are, is that series over your leadership thing? Is that still ongoing? Yeah, it finishes this Wednesday, actually. Yeah. Um, and any, anybody who wears jeans and high top cons or whatever he does to the national and, and, uh, you know, when, when you guys hosted the, uh, or I, I, I don't know whether you were there or not, but hosted the Ryder cup, he certainly raised the bar in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, volunteer hospitality and, and all that kind of stuff. He just put it into a whole different world, but. So I would like to pick your brain a little bit about the the work environment there, um, mm -hmm. as as we get back to that. So Jordan, right now. Um, so Jordan Kitchen, Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Uh, interesting in that uh, I've spent. Uh, most of my career on the assistant side transitioned to being a superintendent in 2019. Uh, Hamilton is a PGA Tour destination. Um, we hosted the Canadian Open in 2019. Um, I'm fortunate to have a really large operation and several assistants, um, kind of commensurate with the property and, and, and the operation. Um, is this an issue at our property, absolutely. Um, we have struggled. Um, now we've come through a project, uh, but we have struggled the past few years in attracting and retaining uh, assistant in training uh, positions. Uh, and often they come out of school. Um, and I would say that despite the project, we try our best to do the work-life balance. Anybody who's done a growing knows that maintenance and growing are kind of different things. Um, and we have them come and, you know, they kind of, mm, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, if you look at the job board in our neck of the woods, yeah, there's like 33 positions. There's a lot of supers jobs, but there are even more assistance jobs. Um, and I have great friends and colleagues who, um, you know, persevered as assistants at, at great clubs. Um, and over the past two or three years have decided that they wanna take up um, the sales route um, because they want to find that balance. They wanna start families and things like that. Um, I guess the other interesting caveat uh, from my perspective is I also teach at the University of Guelph and the Associates um, Diploma in Turfgrass Management. Um, and uh, I'd say numbers, particularly this year, uh, are down. That could be because of COVID. I think recruitment is a little bit better for next year, but we're talking a max of say 35 students, right? You know, we have more jobs than we have students in the pipeline. Greg. All right. Well, Chad, I'm a I'm a fellow Bison, so good to good to see another member of the Thundering Herd on the on the call here. Roll herd. Yeah, uh, and Brian Bowl over at Interlochen was a classmate of mine. 
and uh, like you said it, it was a horticulture degree there was no turf uh program there um so from my perspective it, it's a little different um in that i was only a, an assistant for about a year before i was offered the superintendent job at my course um the assistant that i had it was with me for uh nine of my 12 years he started in the pro shop you know just the kid who played golf and started there and jumped over to my side uh decided he liked it went to south dakota state and got his uh turf degree interned out at bandon dunes so he kind of did the whole the whole circuit um but ended up sticking with me and then when i was let go he was offered my position and turned it down simply because the culture at our course was not not very good um, outside of my department so what i focused on and what i learned was that as chad said again trust is a big thing um, trust guidance empowerment are words that are new to a lot of uh, the old school uh, golf people that have been in golf, you know, for 30 plus years. I think the that attitude needs to change a lot at a lot of these courses. Um, you know, this hierarchical top down structure that exists um, isn't going to fly for too much longer. The, the younger generation coming up is a lot more, they're going to be looking for a lot more of a transactional type of, of employment where I'll do this for you, but you have to do something for me. You have to, you know, there's so many options now for, for the younger generation as far as what to do and, and how to do it. That if, if something's not, you know, if they sniff something that's not cool, right, they're going to be gone in a second. So I think building that trust and learning how to, how to, how to, I don't want to say coax, but encourage the younger generation to, to, to understand the benefits of, of working in this industry. And, uh, and again, that comes through trust and, and, and encouragement and empowerment. Um, you know, however, everybody's got a little different way that they, they take that approach. But um, to me, that's, that's one of the big barriers is, is breaking the, the traditional top-down structure in, in a golf course. And in my, uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm currently looking for a job and, you know, just some of the interviews I've had, I mean, it's, I, I know that I'm not right for this job because, you know, of the questions I'm being asked and you can tell these guys haven't hired a superintendent in 20, 30 years. And I'm like, look, you know, I, I'm the youngest guy you can ask this question to, um, as far as you know, are you ready to commit for 20 years? You know, <laughs> you know, forget that, forget even five years. You know, what are you gonna do for me today? I'm curious. Um, I think I'm is, curious is the, the shift the, that needs I'm I'm curious about the oh, go ahead. The, I'm curious about the hierarchy of the course that you were at. Uh, you said it was sort of a toxic, unhappy place. So well, was was it a a sole owner? Was it a country club, a board, a, you know, general manager type of thing, or or what was that hierarchy? 
I, I had one general manager that I was reporting to and he was, a, he was, he started out as the golf pro and had been in the industry his whole life. I mean, he's, he's, he was a you know good golfer in high school, went to junior college in Arizona and became a pro right away. You know, he's in his fifties now. Um, I guess where he and I differed, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how many conversations we had where he told me I need to fire my assistant because he's just not, just not cut, cut out. You, you need to find somebody else. And we all know sitting here that there are not a lot of assistants out there and he just, he didn't get it. I mean, I remember one year I was about to go to national golf day and, and he said, you know, he said, you know, you're leaving Carson in charge. And I just don't think he's, he's good enough. You know, you need to, you need to find somebody else. And, and I said, look, you know, he said, all these guys going to national golf day, they have superintendents or assistants that are, you know, ready to take over. <laughs> I said, no, no, they don't. And, uh, came back to him actually with three or four guys that I talked to. And I mean, one, one conversation I had with Joe Gardner out in New York. He said, Greg, we've had two assistant positions posted for over a year and I've had one applicant. He said, I don't have an assistant right now. This is Joe Gardner at Fresh Meadow. Yes. On Long Island. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's the mentality. So the toxicity built from there. I mean, he, one guy was late one time and he wanted me to fire him. And I said, no, I need to, I'm going to understand why he's late and you know, see if there's something there that, that, that we can address or can, can, can we schedule them on an afternoon shift? You know, something we had talked about before and, you know, different types of scheduling, um, being more flexible. I think in the old school mentality in that, in that top down structure, it's you do it my way, you know, you show up at six 30 and that's, or five 30 or whatever. And that's the only way to do it. That's what needs to break and and shift and it, it i think it takes it, it might take a lot of effort it might take a lot of these boards you know getting some new blood on some of these boards and, and greens committees at some of these courses but yeah it was so it was just the gm and, and we had an owner who wasn't very involved and we you know just signed the checks and he and i got along very well but uh, yeah the gm wanted he wanted yelling and screaming and firing and so you didn't really have the autonomy that you needed to run your program as you saw fit in the end no um i i was told to do it one way and i'm the type of person who i'm not going to do something that's not authentic to me and and the way that i work and so that there were some clashes and some long heated discussions about how to do it and the, the proof was in the pudding for me. I mean, my assistant, and my mechanic were with me for, like I said, nine, 10 years. And they both quit when I left. Um, I had a core of seven or eight seasonal employees that came back every single year and they liked their jobs. They, they enjoyed, they, what I always say, and I always tell everybody is I want to create a place where I want to come to work. Well, there you go. And if it's, you know, if there's, if you if you come to work and you're there's fear and concern and nervousness and uncertainty that's just not going to fly anymore and and 
So I think that's, and I think that's permanent in a lot more places than we may think in the golf industry. Um, so I think that's a big shift that needs to happen. And again, like, you know, it was mentioned just a little bit ago, they don't teach leadership in turf school. They don't teach, you know, empathy. <laughs> I mean, I, I just learned what empathy was, you know, four years ago from my, you know, because of my marriage, you know, I, I had to. So yeah. these things, these things need to be taught and learned and, and understood to be successful in leadership and to, and to build those relationships and, and draw people in, um, you know, to, to this industry, especially the younger generation who are, they, they're looking for connections and they're looking for purpose and they're looking for, you know, I'll give to you, but what are you going to give to me? I'm not going to just come in and listen to you and obey everything that you say. Cause if it's, if it's going to be just, I have, you know, I'm, I'm just a robot, you know, expected to follow every command. I'm not going to stick around. So Jennifer was just about jumping out of her chair a few minutes ago when you, <laughs> when you mentioned was a national golf day or something. What, yeah. what, what stirred you up about that? I think he was talking about being able to leave for the day and not having anybody to. Uh... <laughs> I get that all the time when I get invited to National Golf Day or the, the U.S. Women's Open events. So, you know, I have to prove to my uh, chain of command here that, you know, the, the team that I have created that works behind me, that makes me look good is able to be that team that I leave behind when I go to those events and I can trust. My phone is with me all the time. I am, I'm a phone call away if something happens. And uh, I have been very fortunate here at Westlake to, to get that team together that, that I can trust. Um, my, my son, I said, uh, you know, is working with me. Um, my mentor that got me into the business, um, he kind of got shafted at, at where he was at uh, a few years ago and and he ended up coming to work for me he's like I just want to work um so he's here and and a friend of his that worked at his course has come on on uh, the crew so I've built a team that I know that I can trust will get the job done if I'm not here and you know just just making sure that my boss understands that I have that trust in that crew um is, is vital and, and uh, it just it has to happen. And I, I think coming from the courses that I've, I've worked at, I've worked at, you know, military facilities and I've worked at the municipal level. Um, you know, I've been taught by my mentors that the grass will be there tomorrow. Um, what we don't get done today, it, it'll be there for us tomorrow to do. And, and nobody's gonna die. Um, if the grass dies, we have seed, you know, we don't want that to happen, but it, it sometimes does and, and we can fix it. But um, just having that uh, open communication and, uh, you know, being able to trust your crew is key. And you've been able to, to build your own team there in the, what, how long have you been there for four years or so? Uh, this is years? my, the beginning of my third season here. Third, yeah. And you've been able to build your own team pretty much. Pretty much. I have a few of the, the couple of people that were here before I got here, but the core of my crew is, is all new to Westlake in the yeah. last two years. Uh, regarding uh, going away for the day, uh, somebody I used to work with used to say, it ain't ice cream. It's not going to melt. <laughs> so curious about um, scheduling. Uh, Phil, what 
what schedule or typical in-season schedule do you run your crews? So, uh, so I have 18 holes public, 18 holes private, and the public course, all they see is revenue, right? So we start as early as 4.30. There's spray days where we're starting at 3 o'clock uh, to get ahead of a 5.30 tee time. Right. We were as early as 528, 525 really? last year. Uh, <laughs> and with the COVID boom, while it's been great for golf and revenue on that end, it's even made that situation worse. Uh, and it's, I think it's one of the things that does hurt us. Right. So uh, they want us to be ahead of play. They don't, they want minimal interruptions with outings. And of course they want it all done uh, at four in the morning. Um, and we can debate whether that's right, wrong or indifferent. Uh, but the younger population we're probably looking to hire, it just isn't appealing. And we don't pay enough to uh, make it worth their while. Um, and I, I, I think that's part of our issue. Um, I can be somewhat flexible. Uh, part of the employee, uh, the employees I've hired, one of the um, things I've changed to make it more appealing is offer more flexibility. Uh, you want to work a three-day work week? Great. Uh, you know, whatever I can do to just retain, hire, and then retain those people. Um, we've, we've gotten a lot more flexible with that. Uh, this year, I've already hired a guy that basically said, I don't want to work six days. I want to work five. Sure. You know, and that's part of it is because we're all desperate. I'm desperate just as everyone else is, I'm sure. Um, so that's one change we've made. Uh, but I couldn't, I, I, I'm not in a position to extend that flexibility to the assistant level. Um, those guys with um, being asked to do it for what we're asked to do it, uh, budget-wise, uh, we, I just, I wish I could offer them a five-day work week. I wish I could offer them rotating, like, okay, you go home at one today, and the three of us will handle it, you know, uh, I posted on Twitter, tweeted that I also lost my AIT Friday, and I say lose, I encourage him to leave, but that's and there's another position that I'm down or have to replace. Um, He's the one that went we to wing foot. He went to wing foot. Yep. And, and I think that that spurred another discussion with Jennifer involved also where, especially in my area, um, man, all of these jobs go to the same uh, people that worked at the same couple properties. And I think that hurts us. Right. So I think a lot of guys get in and see it as a dead end quickly. And I am super fortunate. I, and Chad touched on it. And uh, I have thought, you know, I'm 39, it's my 13th year. And my career probably hinged on one sentence that I said in an interview, not even realizing the importance of it. And if I hadn't made the decision to take that interview, luckily, fortunately, made that statement I probably would be out too you know uh and I was fortunate that it happened and circumstances um lined up and I'm, well, I'm still don't in. leave us don't leave us hanging here I mean come on so, what was what was the so sentence? uh so you I dro you dropped my, somebody's my, name so no no I interviewed my current boss who 13 years later is still my boss um, interviewed for a super's job and we're riding the property and so we're really not even in the formal interview and I just said, looking at the greens, and I was coming from a course with over four acres of greens, that uh, link style course that we did a lot of hand wearing on, California style greens. 
open wind, uh, river winds in New Jersey, if anyone's familiar with it, um, we hand watered a lot. So I'm interviewing for a place with less than two and a half acres of greens. And in the golf cart, I said to him, man, you probably hand water all these greens almost all the time. Little uh, unknown to me how uh, profound that statement was to him based on the other interviews he had, because I knew some of the other people that were interviewing, and I know there was a couple more qualified. And years later, he told me that, that basically that statement, I was the only person to make note of that is why I got hired. And if I don't say that and I don't get that job, you know, the guy I was working for at the time is still at the same place. So we're here 13 years later, I would uh, maybe still be his assistant. And who, that's not, that's, uh, who wants to do that? You know, um, we, and these guys take these jobs at these higher end clubs and, um, and I get waiting it out for years and years there, right? Because the, the reward is probably worth the time. Uh, but in many places in the mid-level, it is probably a dead end or at least years before your, your time pays off. Right. How about at Hazeltine, Chad? What's your, your work schedule there? So uh, historically, we've done the uh, one weekend on, one weekend off. So would that be 12 days on, two off? And then kind of the Friday you have off is kind of a flex day if there's something going on obviously come in if not um you can if you got something going on if you want to be or i shouldn't say want to be at work but if you want to do a personal project or something it's okay to not be there that day so it's kind of 11 and a half to two and a half but this uh season we're going to do every third weekend for assistance being that we have three of them for our seasonal staff uh, everyone else it's going to remain that 12 on, two off time frame. And number of hours then typically? Is there a target? Say, oh, what was that? End of that? Is there, a, is there a target for number of hours? For assistance, um, I'd say we, I, we don't have a target. I don't know if anyone tracks it, but I'd say we're between 40 and 48. Uh, and then if you work the weekend, you might get over 50 occasionally but probably more in that mid 40 range and our seasonal employees are hovering right in the mid thirties. That's about the lowest I've heard. Lately. Mm -hmm. We are gifted obviously with kind of a larger budget than the average golf course to hire a lot of people uh, working less hours though. Well, you know, I spoke with a, um, a head greenkeeper over in England and he's at, uh, Royal St. George's where they had the open last year. And so a head greenkeeper is like a second assistant. He's not a course manager. He's not a deputy course manager. He would be either a second assistant or a foreman or something like that. And um, he was very frankly said, I, I earn 32,000 uh, pounds a year, which is about $40,000. Um, he's 42 years old. It's a career position for him. Um, but he works a 37 and a half hour week. Now, given that that's a Lynx course, so there are no trees, um, it's on the coast of England. So, you know, it's very, very mild temperate. So they, it, it doesn't have to deal with a lot of the stuff. I don't think that, that um, other areas might have to deal with, but that certainly may 
made my ears perk up wondering how they did that but jordan so um my first year as superintendent uh i made the change for our assistants we had three at the time i guess we still have three uh, and they work every third weekend that was a departure from the every other that they had worked and even i had worked um, in years previous i'm really big believer that um you know there's everybody's the heartbeat but you know i want my assistants to be sharp and rested the better they are the better everyone else is um we we switched back to every other um because of covid for one year and i'll never do it again so they work every third weekend on a rotating basis they're averaging probably between 50 and 60 hours per cycle um and i don't you know i don't want them to work more than that um there's one particular assistant who my favorite thing to say is you know it's time to go home um and if he if he watches this he'll know who he is uh, but i really believe in in that balance uh, i think it's important you know can we do better uh, absolutely but um i think it, it, again it's progress sure paul schedule yeah i think we're pretty close to what chad and, and jordan were talking about actually um i don't work weekends actually I'm I'm not in the loop, even though I'm the superintendent and general manager. I rarely, I will stop by on the weekends, but I don't work. I, I made that decision a long time ago, principally when I became the GM. I just, there, there wasn't enough of me to go around. So I knew working every weekend wasn't going to fly. So, so we, we, uh, we only have a team of between 12 and 15 at the best of times. So we just divide ourselves into three teams and tackle the weekends that way. And, and um, so it's every third weekend. Yeah, every third weekend. And we've taken kind of the same approach as Phil mentioned. We we just hire more people and they work less hours and we don't care. It's fine. It's and to tell you the truth, it works out better most of the time. Like there's a few more bodies around, but we're an extremely busy golf course, um, especially in the last couple of years. There's nothing for us to go stretches at a time where there's 300 plus rounds a day and we only have 18 holes. So it's it's nonstop. And the quicker we can get out of the way. The better it is so we we start 5 36 and if i can have younger kids or i can have people that only want to work till 10 or 11 in the, in the morning that's fine by me and and that's generally how we keep things going so yeah one of the things that that jumped out at me um reading through the comments on that that twitter thread was that somebody said that you know sort of the best laid plans are in place to work X number of hours or whatever it happens to be until somebody decides that they don't want to show up. And then everybody, you know, they have to jump through the hoops to make sure that gets covered. Does, do you guys typically have enough of a buffer to handle that when for no shows or gee, I'm sick today or whatever it happens to be? Phil? Uh, depends on the day, uh, but yeah, I'm fortunate enough to um, be staffed well enough that one or two doesn't totally implode my day. So yeah, I'm close. Greg, back in the day, what was your schedule like? Um, we ran 
so between me and my assistant and my equipment manager, uh, we would rotate weekends in a sense that we never worked both days, but two of us would take a, you know, two of us would be on and one off every weekend. So if it was me and my assistant, he'd work Saturday, I'd work Sunday, and then the equipment manager manager would be off. And then the next weekend, you know, the, the, the equipment manager and me Saturday, Sunday, and then the assistant would be off. So we kind of rotated in that sense. And then I had usually out of my 12 to 14 part-timers, you know, four, four to six guys that would rotate every other weekend. Some guys like work week, working weekends, you know, cause they knew it was a short shift. Um, but that was, again, like you, you said, I, a fresh mind and a fresh body is, does the best work. And I don't, I don't want my guys getting burned out. I don't want myself getting burned out. And, 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 and I think that's a big key. And, you know, we're talking about scheduling. Um, some of you are familiar with Matt Gourlay in uh, sure. Kansas. He just spoke at the South Dakota show and, and a friend of mine back home was telling me that he was talking about one of his presentations was managing Gen Z, Generation Z, you know, the new guys coming up. And he said that he schedules now, he said he has at his 18 hole facility, I think 37 total employees, but the equivalent hours of only eight full-time people. So a lot of short shifts, a lot of part-time, you know, shifts. And my friend Dan said there was some guys in the in the seminar just shaking their heads and one guy got really upset saying that's not you know that's not work ethic and all this stuff and my parents taught me that you know you put in 60 hours and work dust till dawn and so there was it was definitely it's it's a touchy subject i think for a lot of guys who were brought up with this mentality that you know you work dust to dawn and that's that's the way to get the job done and that's just not the case so so that was interesting and i i'm curious to see and i i I would like to talk to Matt more about that, but that's, that's just the way it is. And that, so, um, I, I think that's the approach that the, the shift that you're going to see in a lot of courses, I think is. Yeah. One would have to wonder whether those, those are more retirees. Yeah. I would think than they would be because obviously younger people who either are have a family or are saving, you know, have car loans and that kind of stuff, they're not going to be able to survive or work in three or four hours a day, I wouldn't think. But, but from that model, if you do have some, a lot of students in that group, your odds of finding that one or two people who want to pursue this as a career might improve if you, if you expose more people to it. So that's one way to look at that, at that approach. Jennifer, how about your scheduling? Um, for me, my guys cannot make any overtime. I I did get them to pay just during aeration time, finally, a little bit of overtime. Is that a municipal facility? No, it's, it's a private Privately uh, club, owned. but it's it's um, it's managed by a management company. So I'm you know, it, it, watching that budget really well. Um, so my guys come in typically at six o'clock and work until about two thirty. Um, you know, forty hours a week. So 
whatever doesn't get done seems to get put on my shoulders a lot. <laughs> and that's why I, I've turned to Paul uh, often about doing the meditation and stuff, because sometimes that work-life balance is not there um, and working on that. But um, getting more of the key people in, I, I think it will work better for me. Um, this year, I did get a, a gentleman that has worked in the business before. He'll be working just on Saturdays, um, six hours Saturday, six hours Sunday. So it'll kind of maybe give me that boost of, you know, getting work done ahead of time for the for the following week. We are closed on, on Mondays for play. So it kind of lets us get a jump on things here. So, um, but it's, it's, it's tough here. Um, That's sort of a dying institution, the maintenance Monday, isn't it? Yes, and I'm very thankful for it. <laughs> um, in our early conversation, Jordan, you, you mentioned um, something about uh, talking about budgets and, and looking at golf course maintenance from a, from a business perspective. And, and what sort of, I guess what I'm curious about is a lot of times superintendents can be their own worst enemy when it comes to, um, you know, elevate. I mean, obviously there are uh, elevated expectations or increased expectations from among the golfers. But the one thing that jumps out at me is that Aussie method of raking bunkers, you know, with uh, the border around it and the very carefully rake that's got to take forever to do and you mentioned to me jordan that that does the average superintendent know how much it costs him to do this that and the other thing can you just expand upon that a little bit sure um i guess uh chad of some interest uh after i graduated from turf uh school i did detour back and i did an mba uh, and it wasn't with the goal of leaving golf. I did it as a personal goal, but uh, I kind of caught the business bug. And um, this idea of, you know, I've had some great mentors who've also pushed this concept with me about, you know, establishing standards and tying absolutely everything that is in the standard uh, to a cost. So that there is, when you sit in front of a committee, they understand how much it costs to rake bunkers, how much it costs to cut fairways. Um, and, you know, you can account for every dollar of your budget and where it goes. And, you know, when we talk about, hey, can we do the Aussie style versus the style we've been doing for 10 years? Well, is there an incremental cost to that? And can we afford it? Can it go in? And if it can't, um, how are we going to pay for it? Are we willing to add some dollars to the budget to do that? So, um, you know, in, in that kind of vein, the question is, you know, we always want to do better, but we are bound by the realities of our budget um, and by our resources. And in taking this approach, it just makes me wonder whether we can, you know, rein ourselves in a little bit in trying to always over deliver with less have i did i capture that for you yeah, yeah it, it it brings back a conversation that i had one of our you know we've instituted a couple of new award or recognition programs this year one of which is the rising stars of turf and the first one we gave was to uh 
a fellow Luke Kringler who is down at um, Laurel Creek with John Slade in New Jersey. And he is also um, at, he's an assistant and he's also completing his MBA and his whole MBA thing is, um, uh, I, don't, I forget what you would call it, but uh, you know, measuring everything and, and cranking the numbers. And uh, his whole thing is, is, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's amazing to me the, the uh, you know, I mean, you look at the, the additional weather, or, you know, certainly the weather, the soil conditions, that uh, temperature, moisture, all that kind of stuff that we're able to get today. And uh, I asked him, that I, I, I think he's uh, pretty much developing his own methodology for analyzing that stuff and working it into their property, which is cool. What else is on anybody's mind regarding this? Um, let me ask uh, Greg, if if it were not for the a-hole GM, would you still be there? <laughs> Probably, um, because we were, uh, we were doing a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm very passionate about the sustainability aspect of golf. And, uh, we, we were doing a lot of stuff, you know, we had honeybees and we had a, a gardens, we had solar panels, we had, you know, an orchard that we were starting and, and, uh, it was a great place to work. The setting, you know, the black Hills of South Dakota, if you've never been, are just, you know, one of the most beautiful places on earth. There's no humidity, so the disease pressure is pretty low. <laughs> so, so honestly, yeah, um, I maybe I would. Um, it, having said that, he he, I have to deal with the reality. Um, I'm glad that it happened. It it was I knew something had to change because it was I was becoming not, I not happy. Um. And now out, you know, seeing the country and applying for jobs all over the place has given me a new perspective on, on what's going on out there and, you know, what people are looking for and what people are still looking for and what people should be looking for. And, and uh, so I, I tend to take it in stride, but to, yeah, to answer your question directly, yes, I probably would. And what obstacles are you running into specifically? Um, how old are you now? 46. So you're 46. So you yeah. are approaching the big 5-0 where you get the, the target on your back. Right. Uh, um, and you're looking for a superintendent position, I assume. Superintendent, director of golf, director of agronomy. You know, the, I, the step up. Um, right. I, there's been a lot of jobs. I've, I've turned down a couple of jobs that, you know, either, you know, didn't pay enough or didn't really weren't a good fit, I suppose. I mean, I'm at a point, in, I'm fortunate to be able to be kind of more selective and not have to, uh, to hurry up and, and find a, a job. But um, some of the barriers, I guess, you know, I've, I've been runner up at a few spots because they end up going with somebody, you know, either the assistant who was already there or somebody who worked there before. I think that's kind of a, a, a typical move. Um, and I guess 
I'm of the opinion that if you're going to do that anyway, you know, why put everybody through the ringer and make them wait two, three weeks and have two, three interviews and you're going to pick this guy anyway. So it's the sense that I get from a few places. Um, honestly, I, out of the 25, 30 jobs that I've applied for, there's been about half that I haven't even heard a single peep back as to whether or not they even received my application. So I don't know. I've reached out, followed up with emails and, you know, about half the time I'll get something back saying, well, we already filled the position or, you know, whatever. It's, well, it's, it's, it's tough out there. It's, yeah. That says something about that. Those particular organizations, I think yeah. if they, if they yep. don't even acknowledge your, your application or your resume, right. that's probably indicates you may not want to have worked there anyway. Yeah. And, you know, having only worked at one golf course, maybe that's a detriment. I don't know. I'm, I, I've got the CGCS behind my name. Yeah. That hasn't really proven to be much of a, an asset to this point. So still waiting to hear on a few places. And, you know, I've been waiting to hear on one place that's it's been over a month since I've had my in-person interview. And, and you're, looking nation, you're looking nationwide? Generally, yeah. Yep. Um, a few places I'm avoiding just because, you know, that we, we don't want to live or don't want to go. But yeah, generally from, you know, Southwest Rockies, Midwest, Texas. So bringing this whole thing in here for today, um, maybe we could just go around and uh, wave our magic wand in terms of one, one or two things that each of you might be able to change, improve um, in order to make uh, the job of working at a golf course, either as an assistant or a superintendent or whatever, you know, more than, um, you know, saying, you know, I work in a beautiful place and I see the sunrise every day and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Paul. Hmm. It's hard to really sum that up in one or two words. Well, it's... give us a whole bunch of them. Give us whatever you got. Well, I think it's I think it's it's worth circling back to what Greg mentioned earlier about empathy and, and even using the word compassion and flexibility. Like I've, I've talked to a lot of local businesses. I've been teaching mindfulness locally here for the last little while, and we're not alone, just in case we're wondering every business, no matter whether you sell golf or sell widgets or sell whatever, people are struggling because people are struggling. That's just the nature of the beast. And I think, I think this wave has been coming a long time. I mentioned earlier about the elephant in the room that we all kind of pretended wasn't a thing. COVID really accelerated a lot of things, like some good, some bad, and some in between. And I think, I think a lot of businesses, I mean, they just have to wake up and start shifting their process and shifting how we do things. And we can't, we can't keep banging the same nail. And looking at it going, well, what's wrong with all these kids? You know what? There's nothing wrong at all. People like Chad, of course you want a life. And when people say, oh, well, kids don't want to work these days. Well, you know what? We work too hard. We did. I look back at my career now and I wish I worked half as much. There's nothing wrong with having a work ethic. There's nothing wrong with doing that. 
but I work half as much now as I used to, and I do two jobs and I get way more done. And that mindset, I think, has to start being instilled at a very young stage in this career. And, and I've talked to a lot over the last couple of years. I've been really fortunate to talk to a lot of really high-end assistants. And when I talk about mindfulness and balance and presence, and, and it's like, they, that's not what they do. And that's not where they work. And, and, and you can see the question marks in their eyes and, and they're like, what is it that we can now, take from this? While they're killing themselves in the process, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it doesn't matter. And I mean, Chad can go become a lawyer and kill himself too. It, it doesn't matter. You can be a doctor, you can be a teacher, you can do anything you want to do. But if your notion is that you never stop working, well, you're, that's how your life is going to pan out and, and you're going to miss a lot unfortunately. And in this job, it's just golf at the end of the day. It's a game that we prepare a surface for people to play a game on. And really it's not life or death and it isn't going to change the world in a great many levels. I think a lot of people during the last two years were happy they had a place to go outside and play a game, but really that's all it is. And, and at the end of the day, I think maybe remembering that a bit more and, and really Again, I come back to that word compassion. If you're not basing your whole outlook on what you're doing by caring about people moving forward, you're in trouble. That's my version of it anyway. Yeah, it, it's amazing to me how much of an impact COVID seems to have had on this whole you know, drying up of the assistant pool, so to speak, in, in particular. But I mean, if I look back through our job board, the um, the numbers of open positions skyrocketing almost, you know, mirrors that onset of COVID exactly. And and then you know, I, of course, looking at things in a broader sense, you wonder where the hell did all the people go? Where you know, I mean, obviously, with COVID, the immigrants were not allowed into the country. And that's a certain segment of the, the lower end um, workforce. Um, and then I, you know, it was said that the government largesse in terms of handing out a lot of money made people lazy and they, you know, and, and I know several people who made more money on their, you know, social security or unemployment or whatever it was than they were otherwise. But, um, that's I think a, that's a dangerous road to start going down to Peter though. No I, I think, I think asking and, and kind of casting fingers like that sometimes moving forward, that's not going to fix this problem. We, we have to start being way smarter and way more, way more intentional about what we're doing moving forward. Yeah. Jordan, your magic wand. Boy. Um, my mind wants to go in several directions here, um, but, uh, and it's hard to follow Paul, but I think, you know, I think that there's something there about, you know, being intentional, um, you know, and I, I think I, I wrote the words prior to this, you know, that this is a symptom of a much deeper problem. Um, and, and 
you know, over, I suppose, the series, you'll get to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I think this is a business where we get to turn around and look at what we do every day. Okay? And we place a lot of pride and value in that. And, uh, you know, we need to learn uh, to detach ourselves from that sometimes. And we need to teach people, those people we care about, that we want to inspire when to say, that's enough. That's good enough for today. Time to go home. There's always a time. There's a time to start. There's a time to finish. There's a time to go home. Yeah. Because the job is never done. Never. You know, and I don't know. I don't know if on my deathbed, I'm going to sit there, you know, looking at whoever's there and say, boy, I wish that I worked another shift, you know, or got another application in on those fairways. Yeah. And, you know, those are my, that's what I got for you. Ed, what about the uh, job? Would you, um, if you could change one or two things, what would it be? Did you say Chad? Yes. Okay. Um, two things I wrote down. First thing, just continuing to disconnect. I like to think I'm pretty good at uh, disconnecting from work and choosing to have fun, you know, especially on the weekends I'm not working and weekdays. And the second thing I jotted down was uh, especially for people in the assistance role is to be kind of open and transparent. I was fortunate enough to more or less have this conversation with my boss this past week and just more so not necessarily asking for what you deserve, but asking and having the conversations of where you want to be and where you want to get to. Because especially as you know, superintendents, I'm sure you guys can all attest to, you've got lives and you've got, for lack of better words, better things to worry about than if your assistant is able to make ends meet every week or uh, you know, having enough of their fun time and you know doing their hobbies and whatnot. Not to say that those aren't big problems, but it's not you know in the top ten things of your job. So I think being intentional uh, to kind of reuse that word of what you're looking to get out and where you want to you know end up in the short term and the long term. So by transparency, you mean that uh, a dialogue between you and the superintendent in terms of what you're your career and your life aspirations are? Yeah, in, in the near term as well, um, I guess being, because uh, in my experience in this line of work, it's, you know, it's very blue collar. We're all laborers to some extent. We're almost too humble to ask for what we think we deserve to some extent. And the way my boss worded it is those who ask usually receive more you know, waddling around in your own pity, which I think to some extent, some, some assistance do, and I'm guilty of that too, isn't going to do anything. You kind of have to speak up for yourself. There's not a ton of metrics that assistants or even superintendents can use to be like, I brought in this much sales. This is what I'm worth, yada, yada, yada. But you still can speak to what you contribute. Phil? Uh, I think Paul, a lot of what Paul said was spot on. Um, but if my, if I'm waving my magic wand, 
we're starting at the owner operator management company level and getting them to understand that we need to be resourced better. And through those better resources, we pay a fairer wage, we work less, which makes the environment better. And we make these AIT and especially the assistant super jobs, a job that you can live a life on and, and make a career out of, as opposed to probably pretty early on needing to make it to the superintendent level. Because we also see these guys that get into their thirties, mid thirties, and then they toil away as career assistants because they start getting passed up for the super's jobs. So I think it starts getting the, the people signing the checks to understand, resourcing us properly and making these jobs uh, just a fair wage and making them more appealing for a longer time period of time. Do we not um, encourage or accommodate enough a career assistant? Or is the to me the general assumption is everybody's you know on that escalator that is going to the top, whether they really want to be or should be. Um, I don't think we do at a lot of facilities that aren't at the elite level. I think uh, a lot of those places may. Um, we might know some of them, but I think uh, oftentimes once you get below, let's say the top uh, 10%, it doesn't seem that way. And just based on what I see salaries posted for, I, I would say no. That, that is changing though, thankfully. Um, yeah, and I think Paul is right. COVID has accelerated that for sure. And we don't have a choice. Um, so I think we're headed in the right direction on a, a bunch of, um, of these issues, uh, but clearly, we might be too late or it's going to take us a little bit to rebound. So how does that, uh, and this is a topic for a whole nother conversation, but um, budget wise, obviously you've got a budget that's set for the year. And it would be nice to say, well, not even to say, but to realize that, okay, I've been advertising for this uh, assistant at $45,000 or whatever it happens to be. And I'm just getting nowhere. So it's obviously we've got to go to 60 or something like that. I had a guy the other day from Western PA call me and he said he had a, a superintendent job uh, advertised at 50. And, you know, those exist. Uh, he says low cost of living area, all blah, 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 blah. I said, well, you know, he says, I'm not getting any traffic. I'm not getting any resumes. Well, what's the first problem? It's you're not offering enough money. So he jacked it to 70, but took away the health, health insurance. So it's just a matter of, you know, it makes, it's one way to make it look better when in fact, it's really not looking better. But I guess my bigger question is out of the out of the uh, the budget, if if you were forced to pay more for a new hire, is that money going to come out of somewhere else in the budget? I mean, I would think it would. In my case, for sure. Um, and I would have to get it signed off on even to hire that person. And, and it probably, I can almost assure you, it wouldn't be allowed right now. Yeah. 
you have a magic wand, Greg, other than finding the job? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not going to be the $50,000 one, I'll tell you that. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. And to sort of sum up with all the brilliant assessments from everybody else, it's it's a shift. It's a shift in the way we think from the top down, from ownership down on working less, understanding more, being more compassionate, all these words we've been using, but it's just something has to shift and golf better figure it out or we're going to be, we're going to be continuing to struggle. Um, because like you said, it's not just this industry. It's, it's every industry competing for the younger generation. It's, it's exploring new avenues for employment. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's teaching like what Paul's been doing and, and Chris teaching, you know, enlightenment and self reflection and, and bettering yourself first before you try to fix everybody else's problems. It's, but it just takes that one little shift to set this industry off to on a completely different tra trajectory. And I don't know how to do it other than to keep doing things like this and, and getting the people, the people who are vocal and outspoken to, to keep talking about it and, and to keep sharing their ideas and keep sharing what's working. And, and hopefully it gets to these, to some of these clubs soon, sooner rather than later. And, and it's not, you know, I use the word sustainability a lot, which is not just environmental. It's also leadership. It's also management. Sure. And what is sustainable management? Well, you know, it's, it's not driving people into the ground. It's not, there's, there's no more glory in a 60 hour work week. All that stuff, all that stuff needs to go. And, and, uh, and it's the conversation that that's going to keep, keep happening. That's going to, that's going to make that shift. You mentioned um, a change in mentality coming from the top. How does that get, how, how does that happen? I mean, does it happen on a micro level, on a, on a facility level, or is that something that the, the alphabets, you know, you're a grassroots, Jennifer's a grassroots, I mean, is that something that GCSA needs to tackle? I mean, they, they tackled the whole professionalism thing um, and were able to, and I'm going, you know, I'm going back 20, 25 years now, that they were able to in, increase the salaries quite a bit. Um, wondering if there's an opportunity there to, you know, help on these other points also in terms of making the, making the job livable beyond money. Right. And, and yeah, I think some of it lies with the GCSAA, but I always have this thought, this thought, this concept that keeps coming back into my conversations I have with people is that, you know, we all know, or some of us, you know, you, you're familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And the people at the bottom, these small courses with where it's the superintendent and four or five guys just struggling to get the greens and fairways mode. I don't think it's going to come from them. I think it's going to come from, you know, the Hazeltines and the, and the, the, uh, you know, the Beth pages and the bigger courses to, to lead by example in a lot of ways. And to, so that these owners can say, well, I mean, you know, one, one thing I got is 
a lot in my career is, you know, how come our greens aren't this fast as this course? Well, you know, they got a million dollar budget. They're not doing anything different than we're doing, but they have a million dollars to do it with. And I don't think the owners quite comprehend, you know, it's not just aerating. It's, you know, because we all aerate the same time of year, the same way. And we all use the same sand and we all use this, that, and same fertilizers and whatever. But it's, it's like, you know, I, I follow Chris a lot and, you know, all the, over the last few years, everything he's done with, you know, clip volume and all that stuff. Well, I would love to get into that, but I just didn't have the time. Right. So it's hard to, hard for the smaller course to quantify, you know, making the shift and putting the time and energy into making some of these changes that, that, uh, that are necessary. So to answer your question, yeah, I think it comes from the GCSAA and mainly through their educational programs. Um, and also from the, from the bigger courses and the more enlightened leaders that we have in this industry. Problem with GCSA is not going to reach the, the power brokers in the boardrooms and, you know, the committees and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, right. I guess certain amount of it has to come top down on a macro scale and then certainly on an individual facility level too, trying to work its way up. Okay, let's uh, slam the lid on this here. I thank you all for taking time out of your Sunday. Uh, hopefully we'll, um, I'll get this up and float it out to other people. If anybody would like to continue on and come back for another session, I'm gonna do it again tomorrow and probably Tuesday. Um, we can get into more specifics. If you have any further thoughts about today, please shoot them to me, either DM with Twitter. I think most of you probably have my email address. But um, uh, thank you again. And um, let's uh, carry this discussion forward. It's an important one. Thanks very much, Peter. And yep. thank you to everyone. You bet. Thank you, Peter. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Nice seeing everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great season, everyone.